Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. If you're in sales, you know cold calling is stressful, especially when all that effort isn't even leading to sales. It might be time to take a more informed approach. The new LinkedIn Sales Navigator uses data to provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing sellers' superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks there should be a TV show about child inventors trying to get funded by venture capitalists called Baby Shark Tank. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play two live interviews I recently conducted in Las Vegas. First, you'll hear my interview with investors Mark Cuban and Steve Case about a wide range of topics, including finding talent that is not in Silicon Valley. And later in the show, we'll play my interview with Scooter Braun, a well-known manager and talent agent who represents celebrities like Ariana Grande, Kanye West, and Demi Lovato. These interviews were recorded in front of a live audience at the Skybridge Alternatives Conference in Las Vegas, also known as SALT. So let's go there now to hear these interviews, starting with Mark Cuban and Steve Case. So um, we're going to bring another chair out. And we're going to bring out two people that I have met when they didn't have any money, which was a nicer time. Um, They were much nicer, but they are nice guys. And we're going to talk a little bit about where we're also going in innovation. Um, Anyway, uh, so coming out right now, Mark Cuban, who who wants to be known as an entrepreneur who fucks up a lot of the time, and Steve Case. Come on out. Hi, guys. Hi. Good to see you again. What up, Kara? How you doing? I'm great. Good. Good. So this is technology entrepreneur. I'm reading the headline here. It's technology entrepreneurship as a force for social progress. You guys met how long ago? We all met 20 Over years ago, Over 20 correct? years ago, 20 years. So Steve backstage was telling me a story when you were trying to buy his company, right? Well, he was trying to sell his company. Right. We didn't yeah. consider buying it. He ended up selling it to Yahoo for $6 billion, and we thought that was a little, little high. Of course, we were not one. It was a to, bargain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I think at the time we were worth, I don't know, maybe $100 billion or so. I know I'm not one to talk, but thought it was a little pricey. But he was smart. He had the, the Yahoo deal, and then kind of collared his stock and made a bunch of money and bought yep. a team and then became Mr. Shark Tank. So it's, it's a, great, yeah. uh, a great entrepreneurial run. And now he's celebrating entrepreneurs from all over the country, which is so awesome. So let's talk about that. So one of the, you guys started off with your businesses as they were in early internet. That's where you made a lot of your money. And you all made the money, but then you shifted quite a bit in your careers. And one of the things, Steve, you've done is moved on to the idea. And I know you, you did this with me three years ago. We started talking right. about this idea about the next internet has to be made up of social entrepreneurship. It has to be regulated. They have to be thinking about bigger social issues and we have to find talent elsewhere because we're on a downward spiral of innovation. So talk a little bit about what you've been doing and where you are right now. Well, there's really two themes that uh, kind of drive what I'm doing now. One is what I've called, which goes back to what you're saying, the third wave of the internet. You know, we all were part of the first wave getting everybody online when we started AOL in 1985 only 3% of people were online, and they're online one hour a week. Mm-hmm. This was kind of early days, and you know, that whole first 20 years was just getting everybody connected, the on-ramps, the servers, and everything. That set the stage for the second wave, which has been mostly about software and apps riding on top of the internet, mostly on top of smartphones, Facebook, Google, etc. And the third wave is really integrating the internet in much more seamless ways throughout our lives, changing how we think about healthcare and food and agriculture and smart cities. 
but it does require a different mindset, I believe. Partnerships are way more important. Policy, regulatory issues are, are way more important. These are regulated uh, uh, sectors. And the second idea is this rise of the rest idea. How do we make sure entrepreneurship is happening everywhere in the country and entrepreneurs everywhere are getting back? And Mark does a lot of this as well. Last year, for the investors out there, I guess all of you, 75% of venture capital in this country went to just three states. Mm-hmm. California, New York, and Mass. 75%. So the other Most 47 states, right? is that California gets more than 50% alone. You know, right. New York and Massachusetts are you know, 11%, 12%. Uh, so Ohio, less than 1%. Virginia, less than 1%. Michigan, less than 1%. Last week I was in Florida as part of our Rise Rest Tour. Third largest state, 1.3%. Texas, everything's bigger in Texas, a little bit bigger, less than 2%. Mm-hmm. So the reality is most of the money is back in the entrepreneurs in places like Silicon Valley, not in many parts of the country. And since startups create most of the jobs, that's the problem. It's also a great, I think, investment arbitrage because most of the capital's in one place, not surprisingly supply demand. You all know the dynamics, valuations there tend to be higher. And in most parts of the country, okay. they tend to be lower. So, so it's, a, I think, a big opportunity. To, you know, the third wave and the rise of rest, I think, will so that's converge. The, that's the dream is to find these big companies, but they do tend to coalesce. Mark, but you weren't. You were unusual. You were, you were one of the few, as I recall, that was anywhere else. I didn't have to travel very far. Nope. And I remember Mark Andreessen wouldn't leave the Hobies in, in, <laughs> uh, on, in Palo Alto. I think that's, he went maybe between his house and Hobies. But they didn't want to go anywhere, and they wanted to stay within the Stanford sure. corridor, essentially. So talk a little bit about this, because it's always been the idea that this was going to happen, that there was going to be Silicon Holler and Silicon this. And, does, has not happened. But Scooter said it best last, you know, when you were talking to him last, if you're on a mission and you're driven, it doesn't matter where you are. Mm-hmm. And effectively, you know, tech has become the industry in Silicon Valley, like the movie industry in Los Angeles. And it, that creates its own set of problems. I didn't have to deal with the politics. I didn't have to deal with looking over somebody's shoulder for the next big deal, hiring somebody, you know, to be an administrator who said, I'm only there until I get my startup funded, right? People came, in Dallas, people come to work, mm-hmm. right? And we get the job done. And so it really didn't matter. And, and the whole promise of the internet, you know, back in the mid 90s was, connect everybody anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so it never even dawned on me that I should be in Silicon Valley or to move. And in fact, it was so much more friction-free being in Dallas, it made it a lot easier. Well, also, but, you just a little history lesson, Ms. Swisher. Thank you. Uh, the first wave of the internet yeah, was, was super distributed. Yeah. Uh, Mark was in, in Texas. Sprint was in Kansas City. Hayes, the big modem company, was in Atlanta. CompuServe, the online service, was in Columbus, Ohio. Prodigy was White Plains, uh, New York. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton. We were outside of Washington, D.C. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque, then moved to Seattle. I could give you a dozen other examples. And and if you go before that even, remember, there was Wang and Digital. Which was quarter 128. Yeah, the 128 outside of Boston, right? right? And so... H, all you had in Silicon Valley back in the early days of PCs and networking was HP, mm-hmm. you know, and Apple. But it still is, if you see 50% of the venture capital money goes there, what, how do you shift that out? I mean, how, it, it didn't happen that way. It coalesced in one place. Oh, no, it continues. coalesced in the second way when it became about software. It, mm-hmm. You know, Silicon Valley rose to, rose to prominence, arguably dominance. But my point is the first wave, that was not the case. The third wave, I do not believe it will be the case. The reason for that is a lot of the domain expertise that's going to be critical in the third wave, the partnerships that are going to be critical in the third wave, are in the middle of country. Healthcare, for example, sure, it's, you know, Stanford does some awesome things, but you know, MD Anderson in Texas, Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, Mayo in, in Minnesota, Johns Hopkins in, in, uh, in Maryland, Baltimore, those are the centers of excellence. The big healthcare plans are United Health in, in, uh, in uh, Minnesota, you know, a bunch of companies in, in Nashville, uh, in farming, ag tech. You know, the big companies are like Monsanto headquartered in St. Louis, Louisville, uh, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. That's where the expertise is. So there's an opportunity because that domain expertise is going to matter more. Partnerships are going to matter more to, to build up these, these sectors in these, in these cities. But it's not going to happen if all the money's somewhere else. As a result, we've seen in the last several decades, I'm sure it's true with 
you know, people here, family members, been a massive brain drain. The people who grew up in a lot of these places left because the money was there, the opportunity was there. But it's, it's a lot different now. I think, look, in terms of capital invested, yes, the percentages are, are absolutely correct. But in terms of number of businesses started, mm-hmm. it's shifting dramatically. Because, Somewhere else. Yeah, because over the last 10 years, you, don't, you know, you need a laptop and a connection, you know, a broadband connection, which is more prevalent, and, you know, a cloud account. Mm-hmm. whether it's AWS or whatever. And now with AI, it's even more so. You know, when you're in those concentrated areas, you're competing for resources, whereas, you know, AI isn't based in Silicon Valley. You know, the best, the best technologists are coming out of Montreal, Boston, Pittsburgh, Austin. You know, Silicon Valley can be their own little world, and it's an open opportunity for us. I'll give you three examples okay. from last week, because we were in, did a Rise Rest tour in, in, in Florida. In Orlando, amazing things happening around interactive entertainment. Obviously, Disney's there, but also Electronic Arts has a thousand people there. The university created a program around interactive entertainment, booming. Space Coast, 50 years ago, inspired us all with Apollo 11. There's a ton of space tech startups in that in that Space Coast area. Uh, and finally, in in, in Miami, uh, Chewy was an e-commerce company acquired for three billion dollars, 10,000 employees outside of Miami. Magic Leap, one of the most interesting technology companies out there. They've raised over two billion dollars of 1,700 employees. The jury's still employees. out on that one, though. That, what's that? The jury's still out on that one. The jury's one. still out, but the jury's yeah. all on, on everything. You, when well, you started covering us, out people didn't one think we were going to the reason. You got to sign it because nobody else in the Washington Post wanted to cover it. Nobody <laughs> believed in the internet. Stuff happened. But the I point is out, that Let me just say, I drove out to Vienna, Virginia, and nobody else did, but keep I, going. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was you know, the rise of rest. Thank right. you for supporting it. My point about Magic Leap is... 1,700 people, mostly in Plantation, Florida, 45 minutes north of Miami. Hundreds of top quality uh, engineers have been recruited, left Silicon Valley to go there because they believed that was the opportunity, and they got well-funded. So, and, and we just saw in the last year, Duo Security got acquired in Ann Arbor for $3 billion. Qualtrics in Salt Lake City got acquired for $8 billion. There are examples of this happening, but people are not paying attention. Investors are missing out on this, uh, what I think is one of the great... Two questions, Mark. Why are investors not paying attention to this? And two, one of the statistics they just saw is startups are at its lowest point Mm. in 30 years now. Is that correct? Two different questions, right? Right. So I think investors are, and investors are investing more locally Mm -hmm. because you can't miss it. I mean, every decent-sized city has a variety of universities and STEM, and there's there's a variety of opportunities there. And it's cheap, you know, for for, particularly for a tech startup, even a healthcare startup, it costs next to nothing. So I don't think they have to go out and make the rounds for VCs. In terms of startups, up until the mid-90s, you know, you had barbershops was a startup, right? You had, you know, labor, different types of labor. Those types of startups have diminished dramatically because people aren't coming out of school learning trades and just rolling out and starting a company. If you pull that out, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any shortage of startups. I haven't seen any shortage of people wanting to start companies. We're not having, you know, we have thousands, 50,000 plus people try out for Shark Tank every year. So I think if you looked at different categories of startups, maybe you'll see some, some categories really falling back, particularly trades-driven ones. But I think technological... Where, where are they then? If you, you, well, let's start first. How do you get... You have 50,000 applying, so you think there's no shortage of startups anywhere in the country. What about you? No. Well, startups are down. That is, that is the data. But there's also an ethos that leads more people, particularly younger people, to want to start companies. They often feel like they have to leave where they are to go to someplace else. Yeah. And the answer to your earlier question about why the investors focused on that, uh, it's not insane that basically investors, you know, like pattern recognition, they do more in the future of what's worked in the past. In the last 10 years, the best performing Venture funds in Silicon Valley have mostly invested in Silicon Valley, so let's do more of it. That doesn't mean it's going to change, but they're, 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 people are just doing more of the same. Venture capitalists, it's convenient. They like to, you know, have, you have to get on a plane to go to some other places. They would rather get in their car. Some would rather, you know, bike to the company. But I think the disconnect, VCs aren't the greatest source of capital. Right. Greece, VCs chase you know, growing companies. They want to put last money in, right? They want to be in Lyft and Uber right before they go public because they can make, create puts and play all kinds of games and say they're in unicorns. The reality is, you know, the companies I get that I've invested in, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, 500,000, a million, whatever it is, they're everywhere but Silicon Valley and they're my best companies. Uh, to me, I, if somebody comes to me from Silicon Valley, their opportunity is minimal, 
because to me, it tells me that they're not recognized. The rents are higher. The employees are higher. They're not in it for the right reason. That they'd be anywhere else if they were. I, I'm seeing no shortage of opportunities, no shortage of investments. Other people I know, investors, no shortage. And the returns are great, mm-hmm. you know, but it, VCs just play it completely different. PE plays it completely different. Angel and seed, Mm-hmm. I don't see any. The other, the other piece of it is, and, and Jim Breyer, who's I know here, is one of the investors on the Riser as Fund. We have 40 individuals: Jeff Bezos, Howard Schultz, Ray Dalio, mm-hmm. David Rubenstein, you know, you know, uh, Jim, John Doerr, you know, people like that. Great, great group of folks. Jim Breyer told us when we were talking about this that because of his success backing Facebook and Excel and now Breyer Capital. He kind of knows everybody in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And because of what he's done in China, he kind of knows a lot of things in China. He doesn't really have a network in most parts of the country, both to source deals and then to create the, you know, mm-hmm. the support mechanism around these companies. So that's another reason why they don't do it. But just because they don't do it doesn't mean they will do it. And in the future, I think more and more people will pay attention to this. More and more we'll see there's outsized investment opportunities because when these companies go public, mm-hmm. nobody says, oh, it's in Columbus, Ohio. There should be a discount. But at that venture stage, there absolutely is a discount because right. of the supply-demand imbalance. That will close over the next 20 years. You know, we're just trying to figure out ways to accelerate it. So let's wait, 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 wait. How many accelerators are there now in every, every city. single right. city? Right, yeah. There's no, you don't hear stories about accelerators closing every other minute, right? They're popping up everywhere for every group, for every vertical. I mean, they're, they're just nonstop. And that tells you, right, it, all the accelerators aren't based in Silicon Valley. Right. They're everywhere yeah. else. Yeah. Nashville to Tyler, Texas to, you know, Dubuque, Iowa, they all have accelerators. And there's business competitions everywhere. Every college has got an entrepreneurship group right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's kids coming out of every community college. There's, there's no shortage. I think we're measuring wrong when we say that there's fewer companies being started, that there's no capital going outside of Silicon Valley. The biggest deals by far, right. no question, right? But I, I just, all this talk about, you know, yeah, the decline of entrepreneurship, bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Bullshit. I mean, it's not even close. It's so cheap. You can start anything, anywhere, anytime. So, there, there, is, there is a problem, though, several problems, just to right. be... I want to talk about what, what, what are the challenges? I was going to tell you. I'm pretty mm-hmm. bullish on this. Here, challenge one number is the capital, which leads people to leave. Challenge number two is this talent issue, where there has some of the best people in the... You know, we were at uh, Silicon Valley... Uh, Speaking of the TechCrunch conference, maybe 2,000 people in the room. I asked for a show of hands how many people were from the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Less than 10%. Mm-hmm. Essentially, everybody in Silicon Valley is some, from someplace yes. else. As a result, because they left, they're less likely to start companies there. And as the companies succeed, they don't necessarily have the talent to help scale it. Right. So you've got to address the capital issue. Then you have to address the, you know, the, the, the talent, talent issue. And you also need to create more of a fearlessness in some of these communities. There are a lot of parts of the country that are a little cautious, are a little risk-averse. One of the great things about Silicon Valley is this anything is possible, you know, change the world, you know, kind which is, of... A, which is the not great thing about Sometimes Silicon. it's to an extreme, but, but right. having a little more of that kind of uh, see, confidence. That's you have to deal with scale, right? So if you run a fund, you have to hit numbers, right? And, and you guys do amazing things. You're, I think you're smarter than 99% of them out there because you're going places where other people aren't. But the reality of technology right now is AI is changing everything. Right. Right. And so what does it take to learn AI? So I sit there, I do my machine learning tutorials, I do my neural network tutorials, and so I understand it. And there's a lot of bullshit, more bullshit coming from Silicon Valley, but any kid, right, can take that, make that effort and learn how to create a neural network, get onto AWS, get a $100,000 credit, go through their school and get it. There is no shortage of opportunity. It takes brains. It takes effort. It's like Scooter said, you got to break through barriers and just do what it takes. But there's no barriers anymore all right, at there, all. I think he's correct in the, in the, the amount of talent around you in, in collecting No, not for you an AI-generated so. world. No, not at all. Because? Because you need, in an AI world where you're building, you need domain expertise. And domain expertise comes from everywhere. So if I'm building a machine learning tool, and probably half the people here have dealt with machine learning or neural networks, they need people who understand the vertical that they're approaching. That's not the type of expertise that Silicon Valley has. You don't have people who are experts in real estate just moving to Silicon Valley to be an expert in real estate. They're all around the world. If you want um, medical expertise, you go to UPMC in Pittsburgh, right? Or, you know, there's just oil and gas, you get it out of Texas. And all these vertical applications, just like back in the day, we used, you know, we wrote software 
for different verticals and applied it. Then we put it on a network. Then we put it on the net. Then we integrated mobile. You, if you have vertical expertise and you're willing to sit down and scrub through AI, learn how to use data, and now data is becoming so much more valuable. Silicon Valley certainly doesn't have any type of monopoly on data. Mm -hmm. Now, we can talk Facebook and all those other things, and but in Google. terms of startups. But the talent issue, though, does get more difficult uh, as these companies do scale. They're going from 10 people to 50 people or 100 people. Well, that's the same for any okay. type of company. When you're going to 1,000 people or 2,000 people, it is a, an issue, which is why you have to slow the brain drain and create this boomerang of talent. But what Mark is saying around the, this domain expertise and builds on my third wave comments is incredibly important. And again, this is where Silicon Valley might get trapped in its own dogma. The, the, the belief, as you know, in Silicon Valley is essentially Ignorance is a competitive advantage. Yes. Naivete yes. is a competitive advantage. And yes. examples like PayPal, it's, it's famously said, the reason they were successful is they knew nothing about the credit card industry, therefore brought fresh insights that led to PayPal. That is true, I grant yes. them that. But knowing nothing about healthcare is not gonna you know, give you the partnerships right. you need, right. not gonna give you, the, you know, the, the ability to deal with some of the regulatory issues. You actually yeah. do need to know something yeah. about healthcare. You actually do need I to had know a, something about I had about a Silicon farming. Valley person tell me a couple of years ago that building cars was trivial. And I, I, I hit them. Um, but the, the concept of it, I was like, it's not yeah. trivial. No, it's easy. Everything else is hard. And I said, no, actually, manufacturing something is hard. So it was, kind of, it was a discussion about where autonomous cars right. are going. This was not Elon Musk. He does not <laughs> think it's trivial, um, obviously. He definitely doesn't think it he now. He definitely doesn't think it now. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back to my interview with Mark Cuban and Steve Case after this. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. It's hard to make great decisions when you have lousy information. It's even harder when you don't have any information at all. LinkedIn can help you overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality data into dynamic insights so you can make better choices. They call it deep sales. Their next-generation LinkedIn sales navigator is the first deep sales platform. With 950 million-plus members, LinkedIn is able to access high-quality, first-party comprehensive data on companies and buyers. The LinkedIn Sales Navigator can provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing seller superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. So when you think about what you need then throughout our country to create, I want to get to social progress by the end, but to create great entrepreneurs. Now you do it on your show and it's that show busy kind of thing with the stuff like that. But I want to talk about what the essential elements of entrepreneurship now need to be um, and what we need in this country to have to create that through the education system. But what do you think the key parts going forward to the next era are for entrepreneurs? Because they, they change over time. I mean, I think we need to start educating our... You know, the reason I do Shark Tank is it just sends the message that if someone walking on the stage can do it, you can be anywhere and do the same thing. You know, being an entrepreneur is just taking a step, you know, having that idea, having that willingness, and then just taking the next step and just doing it. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of encouraging it. It's, it's not like it's some special God-given talent that entrepreneurs have. Well, they sell it like that. There's, there's, there's an ethos around it that there's, they're special in some fashion. Yeah, maybe once you get there, some people like to brag and talk that way. But look, we all that have kids, when, our, when my nine-year-old comes back and sells, you know, a little bracelet that, that he made, or my daughter puts something together and sells it, or someone that has a lemonade stand, yes, right? What special talent is that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a parent encouraging and letting people know. Now, when we say entrepreneurship is dying, socialism is coming, yada, 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 I mean, that's self-defeating. But Shark Tank, I think, is 
has been terrific in, in educating people about what startups are and entrepreneurship were. When I was growing up, it was, those were not common concepts. Even when I graduated from college, it wasn't like a startup ecosystem. There wasn't much venture capital, yeah, certainly not companies. backing 21-year-olds. So, right. you know, just creating that sense of uh, possibility is super important. But going back to your question around, uh, around how we kind of train them. And this K-12 is obviously broken. And one of the areas we need to focus on is the skills for the future, to, for the jobs of the future. And some of that coding is important for people who have that aptitude, but not everybody should be a coder. The other one, the other C's that I think will define this third wave, creativity, collaboration, communication skills, those things are super important and are going to be the difference between make and make or break. Be good. In an AI world, you have to be knowledgeable about something. Right, because Some specific thing. Right, like you have to have some domain knowledge because the whole idea of building a neural network is identifying what's going to feed what, right, and what's the outcome that you want, and knowing what is right, what is wrong, and where biases are, and being able to test for it. It's not the programmers because AI is going. To, you know, 20 years from now, if you're a coder, you might be out of a job. Right, right, because it's just math, and so whatever you we're defining the AI to do, somebody's got to know the topic. If you're doing an AI to emulate Shakespeare, somebody better know Shakespeare. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is a key component. So I think a liberal arts major is just as important in the future as a coding major. Now, the coding major who graduates this year probably has better short-term opportunity than the liberal arts major that's a Shakespeare expert, but long-term, you know, it could be, it's like people who learned COBOL or Fortran and thought that was the future and they were going to be covered forever. Right. The value is going to diminish over time. So how do you bring that into the educational system? Because a lot of it's been focused on code, like let's code, let's code. Cause, and I've always thought that's going to be replaced, like eventually, like you were saying. So go to markcubanai.org. Okay. Literally, we did for um, some disadvantaged schools in Dallas, Microsoft and I and a couple other groups, we got together and started teaching kids using spreadsheets how to do machine learning and how easy it is. So if you, here's the set of data, and this is, you know, if flowers all have these certain um, identifiable aspects, what's the next one, the probability of what the next type of flower is going to be? And it's easy to learn, right? Someone's just got to do it. And we're not alone. I mean, where I grew up in Pittsburgh, there's Montour High School that is doing the same type of things. And because it's like when we were, we were getting started, PCs were so hard. Getting on the network, you had to have a TCPI client, a modem, right? It was so hard. AI is going to be second nature going forward. But if you make it comfortable for people now, that's where the innovation and the entrepreneurs come from because they see things that are difficult to other people and they think it's second nature, just like apps. Apps used to be a big deal. Yeah. Now no one even thinks so about is it. Is there enough push by the government to push the, the, these things? So the government was a partner in this for many years, this idea, or maybe they weren't. How do you... Where, no, I think there, there have been a number of things that President Obama asked me to uh, chair something called Startup America eight or nine years ago, and uh, the President Trump, we talked about it earlier today, I was a big fan and still am of opportunity zones that create incentives to get more capital, more people in, in, in more places. So there is a role uh, at the federal government. Obviously, there's a role at the, you know, the state and local government to kind of set the, set the table, set the stage, but ultimately it comes down to entrepreneurs. It comes down to entrepreneurs with ideas we just collectively need to make sure we're lifting up but, entrepreneurs everywhere, funding entrepreneurs everywhere, and helping to scale these, these, these companies. But the biggest issue for entrepreneurs, for capitalists, for those of us who are successful, is if someone's only going to be paid by the hour, they're only going to be paid by the hour, and they're always going to fall behind, and income distribution, is the disparity is going to get wider and wider. We as entrepreneurs have got to make a point to give stock to everybody that works for us period, end of story, no exceptions, because that's the only way people are going to get any type of equity appreciation. Otherwise, it's, it's part two to that, it's our responsibility, right? Capitalism isn't bad. It's when capitalists don't pay attention. It's like running a business. Our country is a lot like running a business. That, you know, some people might not like to say that, but you can't just look at the short term in the immediate aspect. You've got to look at the long term. And if we don't start recognizing that the more disadvantaged people become, the greater the disparity, we're at risk at social unrest. Because when social unrest, you get a Ferguson, ask what happened to the businesses in Ferguson, mm -hmm. right? They get torched, right? And, and the greater the disparity, 
the more people rebel. And so it's our responsibility. And what I try to do with my Shark Tank companies is in terms of a diversity, here's why it makes sense. Here's why you hire people of color. They do things that understand and have a perspective you don't have. Here's why you want all your employees to have stock. Why, why is that so difficult in terms of share? I mean, like, look, Uber is going public. The drivers are striking Uber and Lyft today because they don't have pieces of it. Now, I know it's complex. I've heard the, I've heard the speeches from both CEOs on why they it's can't. It's not complex. Not that well, AOL, we had every employee had stock. Right. So, so we had the dri- For example, the drivers, some are part-time, some are not part-time. Some it's are, trickier with, with a kind of a, a workforce the, in, like that. that, in that, the that, workforce that, like that. That's true. Would that be something you would say, like drivers who contributed to Uber and Lyft? For yeah, I mean, season? if it was my company, for sure. Right? Scooter said the same thing earlier. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right? And if it was up to me, I, you know, if all your employees didn't have stock, all your, your capital gains from your stocks would be, would be taxed as regular income. If all your employees had that, thank you, my one person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, especially in this crowd. But, you know. <laughs> we want to keep all the money. Are we going to carry the interest That's next time? <laughs> like rebellion I, I, here. Yeah, right, exactly. I do agree with you. I was saying something that to someone in Silicon Valley, you can either start paying everyone and getting people more equal in pay, or you can pay to armor plate your Teslas. That's well, well, that's exactly right. Or, or pay everybody in cash and let them buy stock if that's what they want to do, right? Because right. then the disparity would decline as well. But there's another piece to this now that we're on the topic, that some other data points just to kind of make sure everybody knows it. Uh, I mentioned the 75% of venture capital going to three states. Last year in this country, over 90% of venture capital went to men. Less yes, than 10% we're going to get to women. Right Last now. year, less than 1% went to African-Americans. So it's a great entrepreneurial nation. I'm proud of it. I think it's still the most innovative uh, you know, entrepreneurial country in the world. I'm proud of that. But the data does say it does matter where you live. It does matter what you look like. And it doesn't matter who you know, whether if you have an idea, you have a shot. And that is not fair, but it's also stupid for us as investors. There are a lot of great entrepreneurs, a lot of great ideas that didn't necessarily go to school we went to, didn't necessarily work for the company so, we worked for. How do you open up your aperture well, and find them in different places? And, and that's what I think going to be the create some of the biggest investment returns over the next you know, right. 10, so 20 years. So at the risk of being extraordinarily ironic, two tall white men, can you explain to me how we're going to get diversity? I mean, I could just put my money where my mouth is. You know, um, I invested in a woman, Arlen Hamilton, and gave her to start a million dollars. And I said, you know, don't spend more than 100K in any one place because I want you to hit as many um, um, companies as possible. And that just got started. I invested in a woman, Ravneet, who has a company, Wear Your Voice. If you go to, um, that deals with women, um, people of color, um, disadvantaged communities and just as a voice for them. If you go to markcuban.com, you'll see I have women-owned companies or women-run companies listed. But why does and probably it half of, still? Why doesn't it still... Because the most venture capitalists look in the rearview mirror and investing yeah. in the, you know, the people like the, like the past. And the, on the, we've got three funds at Revolution. Revolution Growth, the later stage, Revolution Ventures, and this Rise of Rest Seed Fund. On the Rise of Rest Seed Fund, I think now almost 40% of the investment invest in over 100 companies. Their strategy is to make initial seed investments and then kind to double down on, on winners, as you'd expect. For over, about 40% are women or people of color. Last week on our, our Rise Rest tour, I mentioned some of the cities we're in. We had five pitch competitions, 540 companies applied, you know, 40 were selected, eight per city. We, we invest in one in each city. Four of the five were women. So they're obviously out there. You just have to make an effort to reach out and go to places where most people don't go to and reach out to communities, even in those places that aren't always brought to the, the table. And I th- again, I think it's the right thing to do as a fair thing to do. It's a moral thing to do. It's also a great investment. If nobody else is backing them, you know, you have an unusual investment edge, uh, and I think it'll become clearer, uh, that that fact, over the coming years. Particularly as the demographics change in the country. Right. Right. I learned a hard lesson with the Mavericks. We went through a lot of issues that I missed, and I brought in some smart people that taught me a lot, right? And I had white guys trying to sell to, you know, Latino moms Mm -hmm. Mavericks tickets. Mm-hmm. That's just dumb as fuck, right? <laughs> and, but I learned, I learned to bring in the, the population that, that I want and use them that I wanted to sell to. And, but they taught me more than that, right? Things that I never considered that they were aware of that were opportunities. And so it took that for me to learn. And as I'm able to demonstrate by going to places that other people aren't, like you're saying, in terms of operational opportunities and sales, then it becomes obvious. Hopefully I lift those people up, they branch off and start on their own, and then it takes off on its own. 
It's stubborn, though. It hasn't changed. The numbers in Silicon Valley still, for example... In Silicon Correct. Valley, Valley is not the real world. I know that. I get that. But it just doesn't change any, where, the, where the money is going. No one cares about Silicon Valley anymore. Good. Okay, good. So you're going to have to move, Kara. I'm going to have to move. I, to... I have. I, I have, sort of. I know. Anybody here care about Silicon Valley? Okay. Hell no. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, they like some of the IPOs that are coming. No, I, I want to be clear. I, 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 I am critical sometimes of Silicon Valley. It's awesome. It will continue to be the most innovative <laughs> ecosystem well, in the country. It, 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 it really, no, I'm, I'm serious about it. And there will continue to be great investment opportunities there. But it's insane that essentially all venture capital is backing entrepreneurs just there. Right. So over 50% is in, in California. About 80% of, the, of that is really in what Northern about Angel California. And seed? Are you aware of just in terms of numbers for angel and seeds? It's that? much broader, much more diverse. Yeah, much more I think that's so, where it comes. So get, getting to that, let's get to finish with social progress. We only have a few minutes. Um, Silicon Valley has gotten its head handed to it recently because of some of these issues around social progress, around stuff that they've been doing, around the bubble and everything else. How is that going to impact things and how do you look at that now? Because it could be a force for change, like we need to move this out of this group of, you know, 17 people who seem to have messed up a few things here and there. Um, how do you look at that? Is that? How does that happen? Does it, there have to be a giant Facebook-like company somewhere else? Does it have to be a lot of companies? Um, I had someone come up to me when I was talking about more women, being invested in more women. So a, a venture capitalist came up to me in Silicon Valley and said, you know what? There needs to be a Marsha Zuckerberg. No. And I, I was very angry when he said that. But my issue, but the idea was, does that have to happen? Like the idea that there's something else or just have to be just... What's those- happening? We just don't tell these stories. There's a company in, in Wisconsin called Epic. has 10,000 employees, started and um, essentially owned by one woman, Judy Faulkner. Uh, it's arguably the most important health IT company in the country, yeah. basically doing electronic medical records for almost every hospital. That's outside of Madison, Wisconsin, right. and it's, it's, a, it's a woman. It was harder for her to get going. As a result, she had to bootstrap it. As a result, she owns like 100% of the company and is a multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get more of those, you know, kind of you know, tell more of those stories? It's kind of like the hidden figures thing. And how do you get more women and people of color on the stage so they actually have a shot? And, and how do we collectively back them? Again, this is, I'm not making a, a fundamentally a moral case. I'm making an economic case. There, there are going to be you know, more and more examples like that. You're talking about storytelling as well. I mean, literally, when I say ignore Silicon Valley, yes, right? Because to Steve's point with Epic and others, they're out there. But we get so caught up in telling their story as opposed to the rest of the country's story. Now, part of that should be the administration. They need to be celebrating entrepreneurship. They need to be out there telling those stories so that kids hear them. They get inspired. Girls hear them. You know, I tell my two girls who are not 12 and 15, you know, girls who are in STEM and math and science and business rule the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, every opportunity is there for them, but we have to start telling those stories. We, we really truly live in a storytelling country now. Everything is driven by stories. Mm-hmm. And if we don't tell them, then people don't have something to connect to. All right, let's finish up by talking about what you think the most interesting areas are, in, especially around, because a lot of the stuff that's coming does have social progress elements. Right. Transportation changing could change climate change, sure. investments in climate change technology, um, investments in healthcare, investments in food, um, all kinds of, there's all kinds of stuff right. coming down the pike, robotics, automation, they're all big social questions. Right. Every one of them, it seems like every major trend coming up has it, it's not. It's not a dating app anymore. Of course, it's not I, a, I think. I think that's exciting, exhilarating yeah. in a lot of ways, but also a little bit scary. And the, the way I look at this is all those different technology, AI, robotics, driverless trucks, et, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot of, of risk of job loss. I would say there's a certainty of, of job loss. Some things we can't envision will create lots of jobs that we presently can't even imagine. But there will be some job loss. But this is not a new idea. 200 right. years ago, over 90 percent of us worked on farms. Mm-hmm. Now it's less than two percent. Why? Because technology made it easier to grow more food with fewer people. That's a good thing. Thankfully, we followed that agricultural revolution with an industrial revolution. We trained people from working on farms to working in factories, and a lot of people so got those. Where are those? Because so we now need this to, is happening much faster. One and two, correct. there were there was enormous social unrest. There correct. Enormous and problems, there will be here, and it's been amplified today by social media. It doesn't by, have to be right. I think okay. every major company, if you look at employment, obviously employment is much higher, but mm-hmm. um, or employ, um, unemployment is much lower. Um, every major company has fewer employees yesterday than they do today, and they'll have fewer tomorrow. They have to take responsibility for minimizing the disruption. 
because if you're a major corporation, you're just throwing people to the street and say, unemployment rate's low, go find something. You're, you're going to create more problems for yourself. I mean, look, there are going to be new mind-numbing jobs for AI. There are going to be labelers, right? Robotics will replace the mind-numbingness of an Amazon warehouse, but somebody's going to have to label all that data, mm-hmm. right? Because data is the key to anything you're doing with AI. That'll be the new mind-numbing jobs. But there's other jobs, all that dom- domain expertise within the government labeling things. So, you know, because as we get to government as a service and there's fewer employees that in government, but more people have to be responsible for maintaining and auditing algorithms. And So name what you think the big, pick one ag tech, any of them that you think is the one that you find most interesting? It's hard to pick one because I, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things. Healthcare, one-sixth of the economy, still not very convenient, still not, certainly not affordable, not even very you know, accurate. MD Anderson says that when people come there for second opinions, 25% of the time they reverse the first opinion. That's a data problem. That's an analysis problem. That's a diagnosis problem. So that's a big sector. I do think some of the use of AI, we talk about how it will eliminate jobs. We backed through Rise Arrest, a company in Baltimore called Catalyte, it's using AI to identify people who have have an aptitude for coding but never knew it. Mm-hmm. Including like a UPS truck driver. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they take this, this, go through this thing, they get put in this coding uh, program and they get a job that's paying two or three times more. So that's a use of AI to actually give people more opportunity. So there are things like that that will be byproducts. But the, the other piece, and this was, this was news to me nine, ten years ago, I started working on some of these things uh, in, in, uh, in DC, that as you look at job creation in this country, Essentially, all the net jobs come from startups, young, high-growth companies, which is surprising to people. Small business accounts for tons of jobs, but as a sector doesn't create new jobs. Restaurant on Main Street goes out of business, get replaced by another one, same number of jobs. Big companies, Fortune 500, some are growing like Amazon, some are declining like GE. If you add the whole sector up, it's not creating jobs. So you've got to be backing startups. And if you're only backing startups in a few places on the coast and not in the middle of the country, we shouldn't be surprised there are a lot of people that are kind of you know, ticked off. It's not that they feel left behind, they kind of are being left behind. So the best way to create a more inclusive innovation economy is to back more entrepreneurs doing more interesting things uh, in, in places all across the country. And where do you, what do you think? Data freedom. Data freedom. Data freedom. Freedom. For instance, in healthcare, insurance companies silo their data. So you get people who go and get a second opinion and it's different than the first. You've got um, Facebook and we talk about Facebook and all their data. If the data was open, we don't want it. We don't want to limit just the Facebook, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want to regulate them to the position where they're the only ones that have access to it, whether it's Facebook, Google, Amazon, whatever. You want it open. Now, when that becomes open, that becomes its own ecosystem. Mm -hmm right? Then anything is possible. So as the performance of processors increase and the availability of processing power is more available, if there's more openness of data. So if we force Facebook not to wall themselves off, but to open them, even if it's on a one millisecond delay or a one hour delay or one day, whatever it may be, Katie bar the door because then you're sitting at home and somebody who can, you know, put together algorithms and do whatever, anything is possible. That's the advantage the Chinese have over us. They take all data and they have control of all of it. You take data faster. Let's be clear, there's a surveillance economy, but go ahead. But no, but you get the point, right? I'm not talking about closing it, right? But what a lot of people talking about regulating Amazon and Facebook, you know, when Elizabeth Warren talks about breaking them up. Yeah. You're talking about the most advanced AI technologists that we have, and they're talking about, she's talking about diminishing them. When you're talking about regulating Facebook and Amazon, you're talking about, you know, closing down their data, walling their data to just that company. That's horrific, right? We have to be talking about opening it up so it's open access. What would you do? What would would be your proposal? And then we got to go. Open it up. Open it up. So have regulation to force them. Saying you've got to to put this into the big pot, right, of data. And if if it's a government project, you know, where we're taking all this data and opening it up and making it available to everybody. Now, all of a sudden, anything is possible. When you regulate them and wall it and just they have access to it, we lose. It's over. And, and this is not, again, a new idea. It, the part of the growth of the internet most people don't pay attention to was what happened with the phone companies, with you know, Judge Green breaking them up, and then essentially requiring open access so companies like AOL actually could be part of the network. Mm-hmm. If that hadn't Great happened, points. the internet wouldn't be what, what it is today. Yeah. So this idea of open data makes, makes a ton of sense. I see we're out of time. I'd just like the final point, just for the investors, I just want to make sure you're at least thinking about this. 
Personally, I think I've made two great trades in my life, and I think Rise of the Rest is the third. The first, like, like Mark, was believing in the idea of the internet when nobody did. Yep. The second was merging AOL and Time Warner at what turned out to be the peak. We'd gone from a market cap of $70 million when we went public in 1992 to $160 billion seven years uh, later, and it turned out to be a good time to do it. Betting yeah, on these entrepreneurs. I know, it didn't work yeah. out. Obviously, I'm, I'm yeah. super mad about how it worked out, but, but it, was, it, was, it was the right thing to do for our shareholders. This rise of the rest, I know there's some skepticism. I'm sure people are kind of rolling their eyes. Silicon Valley is awesome, and you know, that's where all the great entrepreneurs are. That's where all the great returns are going to be. It will continue that way. I'm quite confident that over the, you know, the coming years, this rise of the rest phenomenon will take off. I would just urge you to pay attention because I think it's going to create some of the great investment opportunities around and most people are not. Most people are just looking in the rearview mirror and are doing more of what they've done in the past, and this time it will be different. I'll tell you, there's a great entrepreneur in your neighborhood. I would find a great entrepreneur that hopefully doesn't look like you and give him a chance because it doesn't cost a lot anymore. Yeah. And with your mentorship or help, that's where, the great things ha- that's where great things happen. Gosh, you almost sound like a socialist. Anyway, Mark Hell Cuban. No. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Mark and Steve for joining me on stage. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with talent agent Scooter Braun. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. So we're going to do, this is the tech portion of the afternoon. Uh, We're going to do two back-to-back interviews. And I'm thrilled to talk to Scooter. He and I have known each other a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And we met right when Hollywood started getting involved in digital issues. So let's talk about where we are right now with that. Because many years ago, you were starting to invest in things. You were starting to do things with Lady Gaga and some other people. Talk about where we are right now with entertainment and culture. Look, I, I think that when you can move culture, you can be a force in moving the needle. Uh, when it comes to investing in certain things, I think it's whether those things actually need the, move, the needle moved. Right. Um, there are certain companies where you've, you're lucky enough to be an investor because of your reputation and what you're willing to add, mm-hmm. but they necessarily don't need you. You find a great entrepreneur, they're going to get there one way or another. It's just whether you can get them there faster. And for us, it's how we can be more than just money. Um, then there's some people that just need attention and marketing and Musicians especially play a huge role in a world of social media on, on making something louder. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's great. Uh, we joke around in the office that you can call it manure, but it's still shit. <laughs> um, so, you know, we try to find great things. We f- try to find great entrepreneurs and what has been back them. What's been the impact? Is just a, a, a study. There's been so many new companies formulated since, you know, Spotify has gotten large, Apple Music, all kind of entertainment companies have shifted dramatically. Internet companies have gotten into the entertainment business in a big way. Netflix has gotten larger than ever. Um, Apple's moving in now into, into the films and other drama areas. How do you, when you look at this as someone who's been in entertainment, how do you look at the landscape when you're thinking of your artists? You have Justin Bieber, you have Ariana Grande. How do you think about that when you're thinking about your artists that you're working with? There's a bunch of things I think about. One, I think uh, 
touring is a grind. It's an amazing thing to be able to go on stage in front of anywhere from 20,000 to 80,000 people. Um, but to do it night in, night out, I, I personally, at the beginning of my career, lived on the road with Justin for the first three years. <laughs> and I slept in my own bed one year for five days out of the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, I never want to do that again. Right. So I want to find opportunities. You know, Jimmy Iovine with Beats really set us up showing us that we can move the needle on a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're seeing, you know, influencers. I don't even know what an influencer is. I kind of discovered it during the Fire Festival documentary. Mm-hmm. Very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're seeing people with influence who have an audience being able to move consumer products. So we're looking at that space. Uh, then you looked at what Daniel Eck did early on where he did an influence around because he realized that he wanted the support of musicians and the top musicians. So he did an influence around at a billion dollar valuation and brought a bunch of people in, gave them a discount at the time. And no one really whined you know, about Spotify the way they were before because they felt a part of it. Right. So when I look at it, it's how am I going to create an environment where they can do what they love, but they don't necessarily need to think about the financials of that moment. I want them to put them in a position financially where they can tour because they love to make music and love to sing on that stage. And the benefit is they get to make millions of dollars on tour, but something else where they're sleeping is making them money. All right. Well, talk about the sleeping part because touring is as old as time. I mean, that's yeah, not a good money. Too. Exactly. But what are the innovations in touring except that bigger, better? The, the innovation, look, the, Depends on how you look at it. There's innovations in touring and how you do a stage design, but that's very boring for this audience. Mm-hmm. Touring has kind of ruined how I see a concert. You guys go and you're like, this is amazing. I look and I'm like, how many trucks? What is amazing is that before you had to break market by market. Mm-hmm. And in a world of social media, you can become a worldwide sensation overnight. And the demand on you is incredible. There's a young girl right now named Billie Eilish. Mm -hmm. She's 17 years old. She's phenomenal. She's a really great artist. Her brother, Phineas, produces all her records. Incredibly talented. But she went from her bedroom making her records with her brother to now going over to Australia and selling out arenas, you know, having people show up in droves at Coachella to see her just now. And this happens very, very quickly where before you would maybe break the United States, you'd head over to Europe, you'd start working that market, you'd head to Australia, you'd head to South America. Now it's like that. So what happened? Give her as an example. So this is someone who was creative and was just discovered there pretty much online, correct? Well, I heard the audience, there's, there's no barrier. You know, before you had to kiss a little more ass. Mm-hmm. You had to go to the radio guys. You guys have heard the stories of payola and you know, all these different things. Now, people are uploading their music direct. They're having conversations direct. They're building an audience direct. Ariana, my client, is the largest female on Instagram in the world with over 130 million people. Mm-hmm. The hard part about this is a lot of these, they're, they're young people with these humongous followings. Justin has, I think, 115 million following on his Instagram. Mm-hmm. And... When I was that age, I, I wouldn't want that kind of access. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you have to remind them that when they feel overwhelmed, if you have over 100 million people following you and 10,000 are really, really loud in that moment, that's less than 1%. Mm-hmm. It just feels overwhelming, but it's really not. So you can't fall for the nonsense. So but how do you use them to create more? Do you imagine that there'll be artists that are just social media artists? Well, I think there's artists that are going to be, I think what you're describing is artists that just do streaming. Yeah. Um, artists that, there's a difference between stuff you want to consume and stuff you want to listen to. Mm-hmm. We're heading out of that world where people want to buy things on iTunes. When I was a kid, uh, for my dad, it was go to a vinyl store. For me, it was go to Sam Goody and save up my money and buy that one CD and listen to it over and over and over again. My child is going to grow up in a world where he reaches in his pocket and every song ever known to man is going to be accessible. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of stand out in this world of streaming? The difference is there are artists that can go beyond streaming and do it live, and they're going to be consumed in a very different way. And then there's going to be artists that are huge streaming artists who give you really good songs, and that's about it. And, and we are in a world today where someone who might have just been a great writer 10 years ago can be a very big streaming artist today. Like 
I'm not going to say that because I don't want to insult anybody. Okay. Um, <laughs> when, when you think about that, when the, the idea of what an artist is, it's still, the money is still pretty much skewed to the big artist, continues right. to be. And I think the, new, the, the idea of the internet was that everybody gets to make money and we could find new artists and everyone would find their little audience and have great living. It's turned out most of the money, it used to be spread among a small group of 26% made most of the money. Now most of the money is made by a small group of people. 60% of the money is made by 1% or some some small percentage. How does that, what, what is the economics right now of the music industry? Well, I, don't, I don't think that's because of technology. I think that's because of the consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, they're choosing to stream those artists more than anyone else. They're choosing to love that music more than anyone else. And people like being a part of something. And when you have a wave of momentum with that much content, it's the same way, you know, in movies and, 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 uh, and TV shows, we're all talking about Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And if there's a coffee cup on a table in Game of Thrones. Yeah, there was. Yes, there was. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's because we're in a world where there's so much content that we look to each other for curation. Mm-hmm. So when we find something that has momentum, we always kind of gravitate towards that space. And when you're marketing, you want to figure out how to kind of push into that momentum. And the same thing you want to do when you're investing in a company, push momentum to help them at the right moment. So how do you do that? Can it be calculated? Because a lot of it is, maybe it is all calculated, but it feels like it's not. It's, it, look, there, there has to be magic and you have to be ready to pivot in the moment. Mm-hmm. Now that I can give you an example, I'm trying to think of ones that like wouldn't ruin stories of artists for people, but I can give you an example of my own personal experience. So years ago, uh, Justin Bieber showed up at a mall in Long Island mm-hmm. and 10,000 kids showed up to this mall to see him and the mall was overran and we told them to get more security and they didn't listen to us. And the, the, I was in New York City and they called me and they said, look, we're not going to let him in. You need to tweet that he's not coming. And I said, that would cause a riot. Not going to do it. Just let him show up. It's like Pied Piper. They're all going to calm down once he gets there. And he, uh, the officer yelled at me, shut it down. They had a complete riot. Mm-hmm. And um, they said I was going to be arrested. I was the first Twitter arrest in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Record expunged. That's why I can talk about it now <laughs> after a year and a half. But the pivot was, uh, and here's the truth, I called every media outlet and said, well, if I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to make sure he's on the cover of every single magazine and newspaper tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the next day, Justin Bieber was a household name instead of just some kid that a few people knew about. So you have to take whatever moment it is, whether it be a mall in Long Island or it's kind of hard to explain, but you see it and you know it. Mm -hmm. But there's little pivotal moments where you have to go off your business plan and say, we're shifting everything and we're putting all the eggs in this one basket and we're going for it because something's presented itself. And for me, it was getting arrested. Okay. So it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be a felony to do that? Does it have to be a crisis? A felony? Whatever. (laughs) Misdemeanor, whatever. No, look, it's, you, if it was something that you could do in a business plan or just write down every single person here would say every one of their friends is successful in whatever they do. That's just not how the world works. You, 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 kinda, you can look at all the data you, know, you want, but it, part of being successful and having moments where things happen is you're doing the unreasonable thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the greatness never came from doing the reasonable thing. It's doing the unreasonable thing, the thing no one else sees, and going for it. And, you know, in our business, we get a lot of data and... My staff comes and presents stuff to me, but I always tell them, I said, we can look at the data and we should because we want to be smart about our decision, but I never have a problem with people going with their gut. Because if you go with the data and you ignore your gut mm-hmm. and you're wrong, you feel like shit, you're like, I knew it. But if you go with your gut and the data you know, says, and you're wrong there, you're like, oh, I went with my gut, you can live with yourself. And what's the point of doing all this if you can't have happiness? It's not about winning every single time. I've had a lot of wins. And the only reason I truly think I'm happy in my career is because I met my wife and I have my kids. Mm-hmm. I don't, think of all the things that have happened to our clients and all the different accolades of that stuff, even though it's wild and I pinch myself every morning I wake up how a kid like me got in this position. But I will say the greatest achievement of my life is when I go home and put my kids to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we get away from that, um, there's a lot of really great business people in here. There's a lot of people in finance. My dad and mom moved me to a town filled with finance people when I was seven years old. And I will tell you, probably a lot of great parents in here, but for the three parents, this resonates. I hope this changes your mind. You can make all the money in your world, but your kids only want you. It doesn't matter who you are in finance. So if anybody's here at this conference and uh, they can spend the night and go to the pool party, I know Anthony's going to kill me for saying this, but you know you haven't spent enough time with your kids getting on a plane and go home and you're going to live a much happier life. 
Well, that was a nice ad for the new parenting section of the New York Times. But um, nonetheless, I'm going to get you back. I agree with you. I have lovely children, too. You um, show me a picture. Yes, they're great. Um, they're <laughs> great. Two of them. I have two of them. By the way, remember, formidable. She's going to keep me on track. I'm going to keep you on track. Um, but getting back, when you have those, when you think of your instincts, everything is moving to data, though, in, yeah. in entertainment and everything, and these, especially as these internet companies come into the picture. And obviously, Netflix has had a huge success using data. That's how they're deciding through AI and all kinds of ways to figure out what people like and what will work and what I doesn't disagree. Work. So t- tell me why you disagree that they're using it. There's not a bunch of gut checkers over there. At yes, there is. Well, some of them, but not that many. No, I, I, I will tell you the way things start is gut check. Yeah, you, the data tells you it's working. All the things that have worked for us, yeah, the data starts to show we were right, but everything that we, the data shows we were right, when it started, someone, a lot of people said we were wrong. Right. And I know some of the biggest shows on Netflix were things that people I know and friends of mine fought for that no one else in the company wanted. And then once it went up, they were right. So I think the data can confirm your gut, but at the end mm-hmm. of the day, there's still good old human, you know... So you don't think that, that that's the way AI or other technologies are going to be decide? It might, but it's going to be a really boring world if that's the case. Mm-hmm. And I'll... I'm going to go and hang out somewhere else. Okay. All right. Um, when you think about when you're pushing your artists, we just have a few more minutes. I want to, I want to get to Uber because he's an investor in Uber and are about to go public. You were an early investor. I, that's where I met you, I think. Um, when you're talking about your artists, if you have this attitude, how do you push them now to, to move their music out? I understand it's write a great song, but there's so much more to it now. What, what areas do you push them into to be innovative? And what do you see as the big innovations in entertainment going forward? VR, AR, obviously not AI. Um, Look, I'm 37. I'll be 38 in June. And I'm becoming the old man in a youth-driven business. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's how do I listen to the young people and say, what is self-discovery? Because in my business, that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. Like I said, my dad would go in a vinyl store and he would find some vinyl. And then when it came out, he felt like he owned it forever. For me, I heard a mixtape with Biggie Smalls. And when it hit the suburbs six months later, Biggie was my guy. Mm-hmm. And for these kids who found a Justin Bieber or an Ariana Grande or a Billie Eilish before it hit mainstream radio, they're with them forever. I, you know, so when you say, how do I push them out? I, I try to see where youth lives and where they're feeling a sense of self-discovery and allowing it to be theirs. Um, and then speaking directly to them. You know, we just have a record we're putting out and someone at the record label was talking to me about how we should launch it with this radio campaign. And I just wasn't really interested. I said, the artist is going to start speaking directly to the fan, talking to the fan, where they live, Mm -hmm. and then radio will come secondary. And it worked. I will tell you, every day that goes by that I get older, I will not be able to answer that question more and more Mm -hmm. because I'm going to get further and further out of touch. But the best thing I can do is put my trust in younger people and try and scale my business and take my place to a a different level and allow them to have the wins that I used to have. Right. How do you look at the face-off between all these big companies? That's all big companies now, obviously, including Apple Music and Spotify. How do you look at navigating the power structure there? One, I, I'm buddies with everybody. Okay. She, like she said before I came out, it was very nice where she said I was a nice person. Okay. Um, but I, I just, you try to give your word to people and keep your word. Um, one of the rules with, with my clients is if they renege on the word, we don't lie. I call up and I tell the truth. And I think people appreciate that. They got to know where you stand. Uh, And Spotify knows where I stand. Apple knows where I stand. And we try to take care of everybody. But at the same time, we're very honest with what we can and can't do. And we need them and they need us. We're lucky that our company has a lot of those big artists that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So we can leverage that into, you know, something for a smaller artist that's coming up. Uh, But what... I think all businesses are very much the same. If you're kind to people, if your staff actually cares about you, I don't believe in this idea of not mixing business, like this concept of not being close with your staff. If it's 11 o'clock at night and I need them to do something, they're going to go home if they don't like me. If they care about me and they know I care about them, they're going to stay a couple extra hours and get it done for me. And we try to create a family environment where we are. We support each other. We support our artists. And I've been through the good, the bad, and the ugly. You guys heard my client roster. My life has not been easy the last several years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
you know, for me, it's, it's just trying to be a human being. The best advice, I'm not going to talk about parenting anymore, All right. but the best advice I ever got in business came from great parents, not from great businessmen. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, about, let me ask you one more question on the music. What do you think the most powerful player right now in the entertainment industry is, if you had to pick one? Had to pick one? Yeah. I don't want to do that. You need to. Why, why do I need to? But you have to. This is like peer pressure. I know that, but I'm not a nice parent, so... Spapple. What? Who? Spapple. Spotify and Apple. Spapple. Spapple? <laughs> no, it's Tim Snapple. Um, no, um, uh, Those two companies are the, the most important in the music business right now. Apple and Spotify. Other than the, the record labels who because, control a lot of the catalog. Because? Those are the two biggest streaming players in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, while Apple just passed uh, Spotify and active users in the U.S., Spotify is a big lead worldwide. Right. Um, I think kids today don't need one service. They use lots of different services. They're choosing between Lyft and Uber. They're choosing, you know, between what they listen to on Spotify and what they listen to on Apple. You can actually see the different audiences between the two's charts. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the record labels still own a lot of catalog. And I think the value of masters is going to continue to go up because of streaming. And I think as you see uh, companies like Tencent Music and QQ in China monetize nations that are that large, you're going to start to see the largest music market in the world, probably in China. You're going to see the same thing in India. And, you know, you're going to realize that this is a worldwide economy and we have to start acknowledging that and stop fighting it. Stop fighting between the record labels and the... Record labels, streaming partners, all of it. I mean, if you went to the Rose Bowl this weekend, you'd see 80,000 people cheering for a K-pop band. Right. You know, so it's, it's becoming a worldwide market and you're going to have a lot of monetization on a worldwide level that we've never seen That's before. That's a really good point. Very last, very quickly, Uber's going public this week. You are, I met you when it was worth $400 million? Yeah, I was early. You're was an lucky. early investor. And you're also in Lyft. Long story, but yeah. Yeah, because so, you were <laughs> mad at Uber. Um, so we talk about the, how do you look at that as you're looking at that? Because you've invested in other things. A few Hollywood people have moved into Silicon Valley and done investments. Yeah, well, I was early because I was a big college party promoter and Facebook, thefacebook.com was at my school, one of the first eight schools. Mm-hmm. And I offered Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Sovereign $100,000 from my college party promotion company to buy 10% of Facebook. And we negotiated with Eduardo for four months, and he said, Mark's launching 32 more schools in two weeks, so we're going to not take any money right now. Oh, you missed that one. And a year later, Peter Thiel came in, and I was like, I could have made a million dollars. But that woke me up to investing in tech, and I started investing early into other stuff because of it. And my life is far better than I ever dreamed it was going to be, so that's, I'm fine. I think uh, the way I look at it is I try to find founders who have a burn-the-ships mentality. You know, if they have a good idea, that's great. If there's something missing in the marketplace, that's great. But you want to find someone who will not give up. And there's a lot of people who say a lot of things about Travis. I've had my issues with Travis at Uber over the years. But Uber would not be where it is if he wasn't as tenacious as he was. Mm -hmm. And John Zimmer would not have, with Logan, taken Lyft to where it is if John Zimmer didn't ignore what Travis said to him and said, screw you, I'm going to show you. And I think you see founders like that. You see it with... Whitney now with Bumble with an amazing story of coming from Tinder and then creating Bumble. There are amazing stories out there and you want to find those people okay. that look so, you in the eye and say, screw so it, I'm going to do this. They're going out slightly lower than their $120 billion yeah. version. So they're going to go up or down? I don't really care. I'm locked for six months. So what All do right. I care? All right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, but you're bullish on these companies. I think it's less than 2% of ride sharing in the United States. Right, right now, ride sharing is less than 2% of driving in the United States. And you talk, every analyst can say what they want, but ask kids what they're actually using. Lyft and Uber aren't going anywhere. And you ask a 16-year-old right now if they want a car, it's not the same as when I was a kid. And if you just get that up to 6%, 10%, I, I wouldn't bet up against these companies. All right. Scooter Braun, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Scooter Braun, for joining me on stage at the SALT conference. And one more time, thanks to Mark Cuban and Steve Case, too. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Lynn Lee Seco, Olivia Lloyd, and Joe Aletto. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.